Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello, listener. Thank you for joining us. Us being me, Ben Mouncer, and my two-man heavyweight panel for today's technology chat. First up, we have our chief node, Digital Bulletin CEO, Romley Broad. Rom, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. I'm not that heavy. I'm not sure. Heavyweight intellectually, I was kind of oh, okay, that's fine. there. Yes, um, absolutely. Accept that. <laughs> excited for today's chat. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. yeah, aren't you? Absolutely. And next to Rom is James Henderson, the person with his hands on the levers of our content machine. James, intelligent automation is on our agenda today. How long before content and journalism is taken over by AI software, do you think? Um, well, hopefully never, because obviously that would be us out of a job. Um, <laughs> you would not, you know, the amount of times I do get pitched directly from people, and whether it be LinkedIn or other channels, trying to pitch these services at me. I mean, if I took those, I'd be putting myself out of a job. So hopefully never is the answer. But you know, there are, there are services out there that can be used. If, if it did eventually happen, people like you and me would be sort of standing on the doorsteps of media organisations, <laughs> angrily shaking our newspapers. And being like, yeah, certainly. It would um, it would make Extinction Rebellion look like a, a tea party by comparison. <laughs> you know, a, a myriad of angry journalists is not something anyone wants to see particularly, is it? Well, I should I should probably let you guys know that I'm actively <laughs> talking to these these people. It seems like a cost-effective way of running an editorial enterprise. Okay. I'll let you know how it goes. And that's the end of the show. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've actually got a packed show for you today. We will be taking a deeper look at our Giga Data Center's case study and a data center industry that is trying to break free from old practices. And a bit later on, we also tackle the topic of employee engagement in the digital workplace. But first, it's time for some news. Now, enterprise tech news hasn't been in short supply in recent weeks, with major stories emerging in cloud security, electric vehicles, and more, of course, from WeWork. So we've seen VMware complete its 2.1 billion acquisition of Carbon Black. This was first announced earlier in the year, with VMware's CEO claiming it wants to fix the broken cybersecurity market. Carbon Black's cloud-native solutions will allow VMware to carve off security into its own business unit. So it's been a busy year for VMware after its pivotal software acquisition as well for 2.7 billion. That was covered over on digitalbullet.in on our bulletin board where we also covered SAP and how they replaced one CEO with two. Now Bill McDermott's sudden departure after nearly a decade saw SAP, quote, activate its long-term succession plan. I love that. And appoint Jennifer Morgan and Christian Klein as his co-successors. So it's going to be interesting to see SAP's direction after such a, a sudden change. And also we've seen Dyson abandon its plans for an electric car. Uh, Equinix and GIC have penned a $1 billion data center contract. And SoftBank, surprise, surprise, looks like it's going to take control of WeWork. Now you can find all of the best reporting on these stories and more via the bulletin on digitalbullet.in. But now we're going to explore two news items in a bit more detail. So Ron, we've got a story that touches Mm. on the deployment of automation in public services and the sensitivity surrounding that. So would you like to kick us off? So um, I thought this was worthy of a conversation because it's so, I think controversial is probably not the right word, but there's there's so many shades of grey in terms of how you might uh, approach this. Now, so the story in brief is... um, uh, a bunch of reporting that's going on from the Guardian newspaper in particular. Uh, that reporting is uh, the result of an, an investigation they've been running in the UK, India, Australia and the US. 
concerning uh, government welfare state organisations. So in the UK, that would be the Department for Work and Pensions, which has a uh, £95 billion annual budget that it manages. Um, and how these organisations are looking to leverage uh, intelligent automation, so RPA with an intelligence layer on top of it through AI and machine learning and so on, to to streamline and improve uh, the processes that are involved in what are enormously bureaucratic organisations. Now, um, The Guardian is taking a line. Now, The Guardian's quite a left-leaning, um, progressive kind of news organisation. The, the, the line they're taking is, look, robots are now going to make decisions about whether you as an individual are entitled to uh, benefits of, of any kind. Now, that's one flavour of headline you might apply to this. Now, we spend all of our time, uh, or a lot of our time anyway, talking about the application of robotic process automation and, and all of these tools in enterprises um, in order to achieve... Uh, fundamentally positive results, which is to make um, organizations uh, more efficient by taking some of the processes, the manual grinding kind of stuff, uh, filtering emails and, you know, all these basic sort of things that you might apply uh, a robotic process to um, in order to free up time for people to do things that people are better at, which is to think about stuff and make proper decisions that involve compassion and empathy and things. So... There are two um, two angles to this. You can either approach it and say there is a dehumanising, therefore, of government because they're spending. Uh, I think you know the, the story today. You can find it on uh, on our website. Um, is uh, that the government in the U in the UK has increased its budget to eight million a year, and they've hired a thousand people, uh, you know, software engineers fundamentally over the last twelve months to drive this. At, at, within the UK government, um, you can interpret that by saying, it's now a computer says no type scenario. It's, it's everybody's um, entitlements will be decided by algorithms. That's one way of looking at it. I think a more realistic way of looking at it is to say, this is an enormous bureaucracy saddled with decades of, uh, of, of legacy of um, whether that's technology or people, um, a huge amount of money, taxpayers' money goes into just operating that machine with all of its kind of um, error-prone humans. And actually, if you can take those humans and stop them doing all that mundane stuff, you end up with, in a better place. So it's an, I don't know what you guys think, but it's an interesting story that we can follow. Well, there, there are two clear angles to this, aren't there? And you've presented them quite clearly there. James, do you think The Guardian, obviously we, we know the position The Guardian takes on things like this. Do yeah. you think it's been a bit hot and heavy with its reporting around this? Well, I, I read... Um, some of the stuff they did and one of the headlines they went with was sort of digital dystopia and right which is that does that's th inflammatory it is very when you understand it, it is very inflammatory um so the i guess the guardian's point is that the, the people who if we're talking about welfare benefits the people mm -hmm. who really need those benefits might miss out is that kind of I, their, I think, their argument yeah i think so so that that is what they're saying it's that actually there's the potential here if any of this rpa or ai or this machine learning um, if it doesn't perform properly, then the people who are going to be affected are, are the most vulnerable in society, the people who are already in debt, who, who rely on, on these benefits, whatever they may be, and that um, these people will be the ones who, who are affected by it. That's mm. sort of their argument, isn't it? But Ron, this yeah. technology does, you know, this technology being deployed, you know, in the, in the private sector a lot, uh, isn't it? And it does, yeah. it does work. So ultimately, isn't, shouldn't you flip it around and say, actually, the people who do need 
these benefits most are more likely to get them through algorithm based decision making if you look at it through a positive lens and certainly if you listen to the things that the government are saying when they're addressing this particular topic that's exactly what they say and they say look mistakes get made all of the time uh, when it comes to different welfare claims for different sections of society um, that's always been true through these processes we will make less errors and more people will get what they're entitled to that's the theory I think the, the obvious, an obvious the, the point that The Guardian makes there about people, the people who suffer most from errors are the most vulnerable. And that's by definition true. That's just the nature of the system. Um, this is new technology. And will it work perfectly as it's employed? Well, no, that's never the case. Every, anyone that's ever made a website knows the fact that it always breaks the first time you launch it, right? It's the same with any technology. Uh, mistakes will, will be made and people will suffer but the point is, they already suffer. In theory, they will suffer less once this, uh, once the these technologies are applied and they mature properly. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think the Guardian's right in some respects, but it's over exaggerating it. So, James, let, let's take the Guardian's position, for example, mm -hmm. um, just just you know for the purposes of balance. When Rom said the line, and you often hear this line trotted out by companies that um, build RPA software, that it will free up human beings to do better jobs. Do mm -hmm. you think that is a, a realistic thing in practice as it is in the theory? Um, or do you, do you think there will be a, a serious problem when it comes to the jobs market and people losing jobs? I think so. I mean, it's easy to say that um, actually this will free people up. Um, to do better jobs what we do know is in this instance you know specifically with with our with this with the UK government we know that they're running a huge budget deficit um, and they you know they need to make cuts all over the, the public sector now it's all well and good saying actually this is going to free people up to do these jobs in practice you know what is it like is that likely to happen maybe not what I think might happen is actually <laughs> those jobs are freed up and actually they they use that to, to cut those budgets I think I think that's 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 certainly a likely scenario I think that the problem here is you're speaking about people so I spoke to um, uh, an author and a journalist called Amy Webb a couple of months ago who's written a book called The Big Nine um, which is about how the biggest nine companies in the world are using and will go on to use AI and machine learning and she, and she's laid out a few scenarios and one of them is a scenario where there are sort of um, cross-government frameworks and cross-country frameworks where AI and ML is used for good. Now, in those scenarios, that's not a, a utopia where everything runs brilliantly. There are still mistakes that are going to be made there. I think the, the, the difference is when you're speaking about the Amazons and Googles of this world, when mistakes are made using AI and ML, does it really matter to their bottom line? Is there, is there a human cost there? Not really. When it's governments and public sector like this, actually those mistakes are going to have a real human cost. And I think, obviously, that's where that's where The Guardian has come in and that's the angle they're taking here. It's very different when you're talking about corporations. It's very difficult when you're talking about a, an organisation which looks after the most vulnerable people in, in society. Yeah, that's why it's so charged. Yeah. That's why it's um, so ripe for the sort of headlines that the, that the Guardian is coming up with. One final point on this before we move on. A group of people who definitely stand to benefit are the builders of this software. So in this example, it's UiPath, okay. whose yeah. CEO recently became the first bot billionaire mm. he was quoted as. So, Rom, in terms of um, the potential that these companies have to really basically make loads of money, UiPath, Blue Prism, the, the companies that build RPA software, yeah. they're, re they're really at the right place at the right time now, aren't they? 
Yeah, and you know, we, we have met and we know the people who are working at and running those companies and they're not trying to create a dystopia. I think it's probably fair to say they're perfectly normal people who view what they're doing very positively and I think we do too. Those are these are transformative and useful technologies that ultimately will serve society well. And I think um Yes, they're going to they're going to make a lot of money, but also they're going to use that money to employ an awful lot of people. And there's, so there's a counterpoint to that. Yeah, um, some people uh, may have their jobs change or even disappear on them, and that's going to cause problems. But an equal number of people are going to end up being uh, employed to maintain and grow and build these things over time. Employment will change. It's not going to disappear. And I think it's rather too dramatic to suggest it will. Now, obviously, this is a, a topic that should resonate with the public at the moment. This story is, is simmering sort of below the public consciousness with, you know, Guardian editorials and not much more. I think in the, over the next decade or 20 years, we're going to this is really going to come to the fore. So anyway, let's move on. Let's move on to Facebook, actually. So one one thing Facebook is very good at is keeping itself in the news and its cryptocurrency project is currently managing that very well. But it's not been a good couple of weeks for Libra, has it, James? No, it's definitely not been a good couple of weeks for Libra. Um, Do you want to give us an overview of what's happened? Sure. So, obviously, Libra was launched in, in June to quite a lot of fanfare. It had been coming for ages. Everyone who worked, in, who had any sort of connections to technology knew they'd been working on this for a long, long time. Released a lot of fanfare. Um and they made a huge deal about they had all the you know the biggest payment organizations the world were on board because just as a quick overview libra itself there's 28 other companies involved but it's very much driven by facebook but libra the libra association itself included 28 other companies um who i think all put 10 million dollars in into it um and they included a lot of sort of payment organizations which you know, you need if, you, if you're going to build a crypto. And in fact, when Facebook launched it, they made a really big point really of big this, deal. didn't they? Because they they didn't want it to be seen as Facebook being that's right. Just you know, the only the only company involved in this, because obviously people would naturally um, react badly to that. Of they wanted they shouted loudly about the fact that these companies were involved. Yeah, very much. And I think almost they wanted to insulate themselves from any sort of criticism, which <laughs> which they didn't. Um, <laughs> but but what what has happened since is that so a couple of weeks ago, PayPal. Um, announced that it was pulling out and <laughs> it it said that it was pulling out to sort of concentrate on its main business and, and um, the, the usual things that you would expect to read in a statement like that. Um, and I actually wrote a piece last week sort of wondering out loud if actually that was a one-off or actually if it was the beginning of a sort of cascade of, of companies. And in the, in the last couple of days, MasterCard, Visa, eBay and Stripe have, have all announced that they're pulling out as well, which is obviously dreadful for for this project now they've all they've all made the same noises as paypal that you know long term they think libra is a good project but they want to concentrate on their on their own things at the moment i mean actually the reason these guys are pulling out is because this project's come under huge scrutiny from lawmakers from regulators um mark zuckerberg is is appearing um in in front of the house of financial services next next month to to speak about it even more and be grilled on it um straight away it faced real criticism when when they laid out how this was going to work that they'd paid no heed to to how they were going to try and combat money laundering whatsoever um so you know straight away this this has come under intense scrutiny and a huge part of this pitch was this alliance of of payment companies and they've all disappeared already before it's got going and then it's actually come to light that in August, its head of product, Simon Morris, had, has left the alliance as well. So 
you know, really, really tough times, I think, for this Libra project. There are now experts out there wondering out loud if this project is is really ever going to go ahead now. Some people have pegged it, it will take to 2023. Others are now saying, actually, it's probably unlikely that this is ever going to happen. Rom, do you think Facebook would have been expecting this? This, kind, no this kind of scrutiny, this kind of due diligence on a massive scale. Well, they must have. I mean, they're under scrutiny in all sorts of other ways as well anyway, in terms of, you know, the, the, the hangover from Cambridge Analytica and you know, all that sort of stuff. There's there's an awful, uh, an awful lot of um, attention on Facebook anyway. So they must have known, um, you know, that there's a there's a, a more interest, uh, you know, a bigger, broader story here really, which is about you know what what ultimately is going to happen to Facebook and Google and Amazon and those others as well who have are approaching a monopolistic position now in terms of data and, and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, it's part of that bigger conversation. Um, I I don't know what you think. I think this. Not that I'm an expert, but it feels doomed to me. It feels th- this is just a non-starter now. That is... Um... Well, the, the fact that, you know, we, we, the, the list of companies that you said have withdrawn, I think the big ones there are MasterCard and Visa. So, you know... And, for, and, uh, and PayPal, and PayPal. Certainly, yeah. So uh, for, for a lot of these stable coins to get off the ground, we, they need to be tied to, you know, some pretty established payments companies. And obviously this is a, a big turnaround for Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Not in a good way. And also the head of product that you know, the person responsible for designing the product has yeah. already left before it's launched. Yeah, so. and, and they and that only came to light this week and it actually happened in August, which does suggest that there's been problems for for more than the last couple of weeks yeah. actually in the background. There's it's obviously been some real uncertainty about this product or this alliance or whatever you want to call it for for at least a couple of months, probably longer. Yeah, I think um, I mean one of the reasons I think I think it's doomed anyway, is that, you know, if you bring anything to market, you've got to have a set of really good reasons for it to exist and for people to use it. Now, one of the reasons Facebook would be confident that that lots of people would use it is because it's Facebook and lots of people already use it, you know, but fundamentally, what do they gain from it? Well, maybe a year or two ago, um, they there would have been certainly quite a lot of people in certain sections of society that would benefit it from it. So, for example, people in the world who don't really have banking yet and there's a lot of people like that um, or people um, making regular bank um, international bank transfers uh, and so on might have found this uh, a much more effective and fundamentally cheaper way of uh, negotiating the international finance systems and so on now you think well yeah that was that was all great a couple of years ago but now you don't need to look that hard to find other organizations that are bringing th- things to market that actually address all of those uh, problems. So, you know, certainly in uh, parts of Africa, you've got uh, telcos that are now offering banking to the otherwise unbanked. You've got uh, SWIFT itself, which is the established um, international payment. uh, I can't remember what SWIFT stands for. Society of International Finance Finance and Transactions. Trade. Who knows? Anyway, you know, they kind of own this business anyway of transferring money around the world. They're bringing their own products to market as well that answers those problems in a much more trustworthy way, you would think, certainly from a brand perspective. So, you know, I'm not sure that there's actually a place in the market for this anymore, really. So, you know, add it all together, I think, you know, it's probably something that Facebook ultimately will walk away from, I think. Yeah, possibly. And I think that, it speaks to a wider problem with, with Facebook at the moment. You also have, against this backdrop of, of the Libra Association, um, the UK, the US and Australia, all their governments have, have called for for Facebook to to start building in this sort of backdoor system and its messenger services. Um, 
now obviously Facebook across its messenger services, Instagram, um, WhatsApp, and, and Facebook Messenger itself, it it prides itself on being completely encrypted, completely secret. Now you've got three of the biggest governments in the world saying actually lawmakers and, and regulators need access. You need to be building access into this. Now they don't. They obviously don't want to do that for obvious reasons. And and then you've even got people calling for, for the likes of Facebook to be broken up, which obviously Mark Zuckerberg doesn't want to do for, for obvious reasons right, it's and, a big part of the, uh, the presidential campaign in america isn't it uh, like this the, this whole the, the whole um, silicon valley yeah. dynamic is a, a battleground for politicians and, and, and for facebook that speaks to a wider problem which which you've seen with this libra association is that a couple of years ago probably every brand in the world would have been queuing up to work with facebook i think now you, you you're seeing a point where people are thinking twice and actually you know are not quite as keen to sort of jump into bed with them Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at digi underscore bulletin on Twitter. Now let's move on to our case study topic and this month it's data centres. When it comes to managing data and compute power, companies have a deep set of different options open to them. But exactly how can traditional data centre providers cling on to the coattails of AWS, Microsoft and the like? Now, Giga Data Centers, a co-location startup based over in the United States, believes it has the answers. Now, on digitalbullet.in, we have a feature-length article and videos on the steps Giga has taken to set new standards in power and efficiency in this market. But here is co-founder and CEO Jake Ring to explain how his company got there. I think it's interesting because in the data center market, there's been a tendency to try to do things the same way because... Uh, the focus has been on uh, never letting the power go down. I mean, a data center is a warehouse for IT equipment with belts and suspenders for the power and for the uh, cooling capacity because data never sleeps, content never sleeps. You want to be able to have that those computers always operating. And so when your focus is 99.999% uptime, you don't want to necessarily change from the way things have been done previously. We're doing something different because the hyperscaler companies, Google and Facebook and Microsoft and others, they had the need to build their own data centers. And when you have your own you know, manufacturing assembly plan, so to speak, you're going to focus on how to build that as cost-effectively as possible. So with their resources, they were able to determine that a modular approach was actually going to work better for them. And indeed, that's what my co-founders, James Longacre and Daniel Robbins, were doing when they were working with Microsoft. They were at Microsoft and deploying modular systems that were reducing the cost of operating a data center and speeding the time to market. So we're using those techniques that the hyperscalers have been using and basically now changing the way that uh, we're delivering to the multi-tenant co-location market. So it's, it's very different from what other data centers are still focusing on, uh, the traditional data center with a raised floor. That, that kind of design has been around since the 80s. And the interesting thing is now, it's like you've got 21st century technology that's being put in 20th century infrastructure that's been modeled on something that's been around since the 80s and 90s. It's time to do something different because you need to have that level of flexibility. The hyperscalers have, have cracked that code and we're doing that and bringing it to the market now. So as we heard there, Giga's modular layout, very similar to the design used by the, the big boys in this industry, is its, is its tool for disruption. So guys, first question there, I mean, Jake Jake touched on it. Are you, are you surprised with how stagnant the data center industry appears to have become in this age of technology change and rapid technological development? Well, I, I, 
stagnant might be the wrong word. I mean, we do a lot of reporting on data centers and it's certainly not stagnant. I mean, it's growing at astonishing rates. Everywhere you look in the world, there's um, deals being done and whopping great warehouses being built. And all I'm talking about the technology think, and the way, it, yeah, the way it's done, the way it's delivered. What's uh, What maybe has become stagnant, and Jake was certainly making that point, is the design of these things. And I think there, there are various... Um, uh, pressures coming in on now to on on the industry to make sure that that starts to change. In particular, th- topics of sustainability and so on. I mean, these things are in- enormously damaging from the perspective of things like climate crisis and energy consumption and and, and all that sort of stuff. So, um, we're see- we're seeing that um, that sort of change things quite aggressively. But w- what Giga-, Giga are doing specifically that's really interesting is how they've. They've developed um, this uh, a wind. I think they call it wind chill. Wind chill, and actually, just on the sustainability yeah. point, before you make your point, it's a. They said it's eighty percent more efficient right. than a normal, um, you know, raised floor data center. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's modular in the sense that they deploy uh, these uh, wind chilled uh, units on a case by case basis in response to customer demand, and it's it's hugely more efficient. And so, from an energy purely, and obviously, data centers are kind of. Uh, measured in terms of their energy consumption um, it's much more effective which is which is great and it's definitely um, disruptive to the market and giga on the back of that are they've got some pretty aggressive plans I believe in terms of their expansion in the US uh, I guess I think it's just the US to start with I'm sure they'll end up going elsewhere but um, what what it shows is that there's going to be I think giga entering the market uh, with some innovative use of fundamentally, you know, familiar technologies, but applied differently, supported actually very strongly by uh, some other folks we met over there in the form of um, Siemens and ABB, who have have, uh, facilitated them, particularly on the power supply side of things and the infrastructure side of things. Um, That will send a little bit of a shockwave through through the data center industry, because all of a sudden other data centers might start looking a bit old, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think... Jake said there, or Jake said when we, were, when we were over in America, that Giga's target market is the, is the small and medium-sized businesses who want access to their to their compute power close up that they wouldn't get from using a public cloud provider like AWS. So they, you know, people who want the benefits of flexible managed configurations, but at a location closer to them. So how do you see that competition playing out? Because we know that the big public cloud providers, you know, they're growing at a rapid rate. James, do you think this offering that Giga are um, putting forward is going to be really appealing to small, small and medium-sized companies. I'm, I'm sure it will. Um, I can definitely see the the benefits of of, of having them in, in those sort of close locations. That is what what he was talking. Yeah, about, because correct? one of the criticisms, not criticisms, but one of the negatives of public cloud, obviously, is that you don't have access to actually any of the equipment. Yeah. You can't. There's, there's not really a personal relationship unless you're working at a, a really big scale. So. No, I, I, so I certainly see the benefits of that. I think that. I think certainly what Giga have done is is to be applauded because just going back to the sustainability point, we we live in times now where it's just not okay to to, to continue what we were doing in the eighties and nineties when we had sort of less idea about the the damage that was doing. So I think it's an incumbent on all areas of tech that we sort of move with the times, and certainly at the data center industry, it's massively power hungry. We know how much energy it uses. So. that may be more than a lot of other technology sectors they have to drive this forward they have to become um, more eco-friendly less energy hungry so i certainly think that that is to be applauded i think one of the things that's uh, 
that's really good about this as well because they're looking at um, energy efficiency. Um, that's good from a sustainability sustainability point of view, as, as you're saying, but it's also good from a customer point of view. In terms of what you're saying, that means that they are able to deploy locally. Um, they can scale as appropriate to wherever they are, but they can also attract smaller and you know SME type companies because they're cheaper. And ultimately, if you're going to market with a, pro- a, a product, any product, if you can deliver real quality at a lower price and you've got the sustainability benefit around it as well, you're going to be able to attract customers in large volumes. And as far as we know, um, it's been a little while since we were over there in North Carolina with them. Um, they are doing that. I think they're doing very well as far as I understand. So um, they're, they're definitely a, a, a leader, I think, in this area. Yeah, and I think um, they, they have got a lot of competition there. There is a lot of competition in the co-location data center space. But the, the main thing that I gleaned from meeting those guys and going over to North Carolina and learning about their story is that, and Jake touched on it there, you know, he has got a, a really um, strong leadership background, but James Longacre and Daniel Robbins, his two co-founders, were both at Microsoft. And when, they, when Microsoft were innovating and pioneering the technology that basically mm. has enabled them to build this cloud computing empire. So actually... From a personnel perspective, Giga are in a really strong position. And also, just um, to provide a bit of extra info on the data center in Charlotte that we visited in North Carolina, it's the first data center in America to be awarded um, classification by the Open Compute Project. Now, the Open Compute Project is a... um, an organization like with input from the likes of Facebook and AWS and Microsoft, where they have laid out basically a set of parameters for sustainable data center design. And because Giga has been able to build this, they've now got access to the conversations and the technical detail around the specifications that enable efficient, sustainable data centers. So actually they're, they're in such a great position now to fulfill their aggressive um, expansion plans. Now, Sustainability is is one factor, but computing power is another crucial element of this. And businesses need more and more capacity now in order to explore technologies like AI, for example. Giga says it can match these ambitions for clients. And here is senior engineer and co-founder James Longacre to explain more and why companies are struggling to get high compute tasks off the ground. I think the limiting factor is the people in the IT industry's knowledge of how to do it. That is the limiting factor. And as more and more people move into it, as there's more and more demand for it, you will have many, many experts come out of, you know, the schools better trained with a greater focus on high performance compute, artificial intelligence, IOT, that is the future. Um, Not so much that people think that robots are going to take over the world. That isn't going to happen. But the amount of information that's generated by our simple actions allows the environments to automate in ways that you could never possibly imagine. Whether that be an autonomous vehicle, whether that be an automated building, whether that be a emergency response system that's automated, all of the above. And so because of that, each and every one of those things has a unique environment. Well, it's up to the IT individuals to create those environments appropriately so that they respond. And so because of that, that will be the limiting factor, but our ability to support that growth in the future, which we absolutely do believe is there, is essential. And it's part of our business plan. So what James Longacre is essentially saying there is that companies at the moment don't probably have the knowledge in in this area from an IT perspective to get high performance compute projects off the ground in, in terms of the adoption of um, AI and companies who are keen to explore 
um, areas like that. Do you think this is a, a common problem? Do you think people are aware of the computational power required to make this work? From my perspective, uh, and again, it's a layman's perspective, but the, there's an exponential kind of growth in um, particularly technologies like AI and IoT and the combination of those things linked to uh, advances and innovations that are being made in terms of connectivity. Um, the compute power is going to be exponential. Or compute power required is required to service all of that stuff is going to be exponential uh, as well. There's a number of different ways that that might be provided, uh, depending on you know how close to the edge you get, kind of thing. But but um, what, what James Longacre is saying is that Giga is with with their flex, flexible power supply is is able yeah. to back up these solutions. So they're they're looking into the future. They're understanding that, that that's that's going to happen. Maybe no. Maybe nobody really knows how it's going to take shape. I mean, a lot of the protocols that you're going to need to power all this stuff um, haven't even been kind of formalised yet. But the it, it's going to be an enormous requirement, and they're positioned well to exploit that. Yeah, I think that for the, the, probably the key to that is they are in a position to satisfy that demand for now. What, you know, whether that's the case in in a couple of years' time is something they're going to have to keep on top of because. I think as Rom's absolutely right that it is just going to grow and grow and grow. Um, I think that I think we're going to come on and talk about um, quantum computing and the, and the role that that has as well. I think that, to, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, for, <laughs> with, with our knowledge of it, I think that that is going to be key to to because this with with AI and IoT, it's it's almost I, I, I think there's an equivalence with the explosion of data that we've seen in the last couple of years when people say that sort of 90% of all data has been created in the last two years. I think we're going to have a similar thing with the amount of computing power that we need with the developments of these future technologies. So I think it's really, it, they, they might be able to say for now that they will be able to satisfy that demand, but I don't think anyone really knows how big this is going to get. So I think that it will probably need to marry up with the development of quantum computing and, and, that, and that kind of thing as well. Yeah. Rom, define quantum computing for us in 10 seconds. <laughs> You're putting me on the spot. Look, I, you know, this is, I, this is where my knowledge goes away, but my understanding of quantum computing is it's um, com currently computing works on ones and zeros, mm. bits and bytes, right? Um, a uh, single unit of information, therefore, is either a one or a zero. Um, in a quantum computer, it's both at the same time, and therefore you've got this vast expansion therefore um, of uh, in a mathematical sense the your ability to 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 do computational kind of tasks now that it's i mean it's in, i'm i'm not sure if quantum computing is necessarily relevant in terms of this the wider conversation that we're having now about because we've got this yeah 90% of all of the data in the world has been generated in the last two years it's going to be the, the same will be true in the next two years as well um, that data actually has been swimming about um, for years and years and years. It's what's really changing now is uh, the ability of, for new tools to be able to um, ingest and then analyze and make useful kind of uh, uh, outcomes from that data. And that's where the compute power comes in. It's mm. like that's where AI comes in and machine learning and all the rest of it. Now, there is a, uh, a point in the future where you can imagine things like comp um, uh, quantum computing may be required just to just to deal with the the things that we want to be able to do with all of that data because it's so vast 
Um, I think it's worth mentioning, however, that as far as I understand it, quantum computing is still a really long way away. They yeah. they don't even have the materials to make it work yet. So I, I had a bit of a look at this, and um, I think to date there's only really one sort of commercial use quantum computer that was developed earlier this year by IBM. It's called the Q System One. Um, have you seen the picture of it? I have, and it's about nine foot tall by about nine foot wide. So if you imagine like the the first computers that we were used for business in the sort of fifties and sixties, think of one of them. I mean, you need like a crane to winch this thing in, right? And I think it's it, we, they, they talk about quibits. Um, yeah. Now, to, quibits, to, quibits. I mean. <laughs> to be a, a practically useful quantum computer. Um, you need a computer with 50 quibits apparently of, of power. Now, I might be completely wrong there. This has 20. And we know that Microsoft, um, that Google, IBM, Intel are all putting millions and millions and billions of dollars into these projects. And governments are helping too for this race to quantum computing. Um, and they're still very, very far off doing that. So mm. I think it's definitely a future conversation. But I think you are right when you say that it, it's um, it's something that will be a, a few years off yet. Yeah, I think there's a point. Um, we can understand the potential importance of this in the future. And in the future, we will inform ourselves properly. So that we can talk about this. Um, but well, the, 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 it's a physics uh, question rather than mm. a business one, really, at the moment. Let's revisit that in 20, 30 years, maybe. Yeah, yeah Just tune in in 30 years mm. and we'll, uh, we'll cover that one for you. So, yeah, thanks for that, guys. And... Um, I think we'll all agree the Giga, the Giga case study was an interesting one and certainly a story that we'll be keen to follow over the next few years to see how their, uh, how their business grows. We'll be back after this to talk a little bit about the digital workplace. Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. Subscribe now at digitalbullet.in. The digital workplace. Now, that's a buzzword I think we all hear quite a lot these days. And I think we all agree that the way we work is changing hugely. And underpinning that change is, of course, technology. But how close are we to achieving true harmony between employees and the increasing amount of workplace tools available to them? Now, as part of National Work Life Week here in the UK, Software One, a multinational IT services company, published a study where a fifth of workers said a lack of IT knowledge hinders their performance at work. Now, it's quite an interesting um, topic, this. So I caught up with Software One's Andy Dunbar to discuss the research and the challenges businesses face in this area. Uh, I think the, the key point is is that there's always been a fast-paced change of technology, um, and even more so with um, the evolution of cloud-based systems. You know, the pace has really, really picked up in the last five years um, as improvements, innovations. You know, the way we work. Has, has changed as well. From a workplace-specific perspective, uh, many organisations, um, certainly the ones I speak to, find it a bit of a challenge to keep up with, keep up with that rate of change, specifically when they adopt um, cloud-based technologies in the workplace. Um, you know, and, and as people become more enabled at, at home, um, you know, they're, they're, they're looking to kind of bring that into the workplace. Yeah, so the recent study that you guys did revealed that 20% of office workers feel their work performance was hindered by a lack of IT knowledge. So I guess the question there is, do you think that points to a slower rate of adaptation when it comes to people and technology? And what do you think that research demonstrates as a whole? Yeah, I think, if if I'm honest, I think that research really clearly states that more needs to be done around um, ensuring that office workers um, are aware and have um, 
an awareness in terms of you know the capabilities within the tool sets that are available uh, and also a lot more needs to be done around empowering those workers um, to to use the resources that I have available um, and give them the knowledge and the capability to really exploit that technology as well um, a lot of the findings that we've we found from our customers and from ourselves is uh, you know customers uh, and end users want to really use the technology but they just just don't really see um, you know see the opportunities and they don't understand the opportunities and um, you know they'll they'll use um, you know email where they should be using instant message you know because they haven't really re recognized the opportunities there with those with those tools where do you think the responsibility lies Andy? do you think it's an initiative that needs to be shown by employees or do you think companies need to step in here and, and really sort of change their training programs in this area yeah there's there's i think it's a shared responsibility um if, if um, from what i've seen you know you need the end users and the workers to really want to start to embrace um, and embrace the technology. Um, and, and then there may well be you know demographic point which is driving that. But also organizations really need to start to, to you know, embrace um, you know, the digital uh, transformation opportunity um, and also actually help um, kind of the work the workers really kind of understand what can be what can be used in the tech technology can be used for as well there's also a cultural aspect to that as well um, because organizations that are successful have also um, you know as cars and technology changes they've baked in a culture of continual learning as well um, so it's important that they, they really understand that it's not just the reliance on the worker and the workers don't just rely on you know their, their employees effectively spoon feeding training it's, it's a definitely a shared responsibility here can you put a time frame on it, Andy, as to when you think, you know, we'll get to a point where the majority of employees are happy in the digital workplace? I think, you know, what you'll find is that as the millennials and um, more and more millennials are coming into the workplace, I read a statistic yesterday that you know, at the moment 35% of the UK workforces are on millennials, but by 20, uh, 2022, it's going to be about 55-60%. Um, so these organised, so these um, millennials, um, you know, they're they're more akin to using chat-based online um, kind of tools um, and not so much email. So I think as the as the demographics change, that will also facilitate a different stance and usage of the technology as well. So employee engagement is obviously a key pillar of digital transformation. So. James, how big a challenge do you think it is to marry employees with the tech that companies want to use? Uh, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, I think. Um, we we know from speaking to people, from, from studies, from research, that um, one of the major reasons that, that digital transformations don't work is because the workforce is not bought into to what they're doing. The companies don't think about the culture change that is needed. The messaging isn't right. And simply put, if you if you don't bring your workforce on board and explain to them the benefits, why you're doing it, um, get them trained in the new systems that you're going to be using, um, the the transformation simply won't work. And and that's why you know a, a great a great deal of, of these projects don't we we see figures of sixty seventy percent of digital transformations um, don't end up achieving the goal that they were set out to do. And, and in a huge number of cases, that is, that is simply down to workforce and not being brought into it. Rom and Andy spoke there about organizations needing to do their bit to skill up the workforce and, and bring them up to speed with these technologies and, and the tools at, at their disposal. What, what level of change do you think needs to happen in that area? Maybe from your own experience or from what you've heard when speaking to people? 
Yeah, I think it, it kind of depends what kind of organization it is and what it's trying to achieve. And I think we obviously we, we speak to a lot of leaders who are responsible for change management and that's tech driven change management normally. And uh, I think what potentially um, trips people up quite a lot is that there's a temptation to take off the shelf tools, particularly from a teamwork or collaboration perspective, and to assume that they're going to solve problems that you actually haven't really identified. You say, well, it's just going to make people better at talking to each other or something. It's like, well, actually, a lot of the time, uh, people are quite good at talking to each other with mouths. And, uh, you know, th- those. sometimes you're trying to solve problems that you haven't actually got. Companies that seem to be much more successful are the ones that, first of all, go to the board and, the, you know, the, the boss at the very top. And that's where the buy-in has to start because that's what will lead ultimately ultimately to what James was just talking about in terms of uh, workforce buy-in. But you you need to say, look, over the next five years, what we want to do is implement a digital transformation in terms of all of our underlying data. And then we want to democratize that data and make it available to our workforce. And then we want to pick the right tools to enable uh, them to access and discuss and use that as the the anchor for the tools that they're using ultimately. Otherwise, you're kind of starting at the wrong end of that journey. Um, we've used we've used a bunch of tools just in our in our journey, which is obviously on a completely different scale to most of the people we talk to. But I mean, how many different team working comms tools have we we use? Email, we use um, uh, WhatsApp, we use Slack, we use Monday.com. We've tried all of these things and um, and many others actually, and it's kind of. Um, We've, we've now settled into a, a certain number of those tools that we actually find useful. But, I, you know, it, it, there's, there's lessons in that for us. And, and I'm sure that those are true on a much bigger scale, too. Employee productivity is something that's pretty hard to measure as well, isn't it? Mm. Because people work in different ways. People, you know, want to go about their work using different techniques and at different speeds even. So mm-hmm. it, this is something that's hard to control and monitor, isn't it? Yeah. And the answer to that is, is a really tricky one because yeah. ultimately the tools provide measurement within them. That's kind of what the tools do. But how much of the of that measurement is actually just the tool measuring itself? Yeah, it doesn't really understand what the, you were doing before, and that's why it's actually the that goes back to the point I was making before, which was uh, um, these workplace tools that are actually something that you know sits on people's desktops should be the end of a process whereby actually before that you're identifying what it is you actually want to achieve. I think that's where benchmarking comes in; it becomes really valuable. I think you have to. If you're going through this digital transformation, you really want to measure things properly. You have to have a, a baseline where you start from. I think you have to re- regularly um, look at that again. I think I spoke to um, I spoke to an executive who sort of um, specialises in recruitment and sort of digital trans recruits for digital transformation projects, um, and they recommend to companies that they sort of benchmark these every three months. They keep, as you said, they make this data available to their own employees as well. Um, it's look. It's a tough one because, as as you as you've both said, um, the the tools only measure what they know. They they don't know where, where that started from or where it's going. Um, so yeah, it's a really tricky one that, and I can understand why it trips companies up. Do you have any crazy technology ideas that could revolutionise the workplace, James? Do you want to fix? Um, I don't have something that I think is crazy, but I do think it's crazy that it doesn't exist properly yet, and. What I would like is a is an AI tool that can properly carry out transcriptions, including uh, different accents, crosstalk, 
um, challenging line sometimes. I, I think that anybody who's worked in journalism or has carried out a thesis or dissertation where um, you, you regularly have to transcribe knows the pain of realising that you have an hour or two transcription to get through and knows that you're going to have to book out at least a day as yeah. you go through that it, it can be like pulling teeth can't it listening it is. you have you have to listen back to your own voice which is notoriously painful and <laughs> I, I would say that it probably takes me four hours to type up an hour's worth of audio so that can feel like dead time and i've used a number of different ai tools um that that, that say that they can do this effectively um i don't think there is a tool yet that can do it effectively unfortunately so yeah, I think that that would be that would be something that would make my life a lot lot easier. I'm fully with you on that, James. Rom, do you have any ideas of your own? Um, crazy? Not really. I mean, if if someone could invent something to to satisfy my constant craving for cups of tea, that would be great. So if you could work on that, that would be awesome. But no, actually, really, what I would like to do uh, to see is someone come up with a, a a decent email platform, which sounds a bit nuts. Obviously, email's been around for quite a while, but I, I think emails still has an important place it's not whatsapp or any other messaging platform it's a place where you can send uh, uh and collect together threads of of um substantial pieces of information with attached documents and all that sort of stuff email has its place but outlook no thanks gmail yeah it's just not there could someone reinvent this for me please or if actually if maybe these things exist and we just don't know about them if anyone's got any suggestions uh bring it on because email is the thing that frustrates me every day so rom is leading the digital revolution with email i think reinventing reinventing it is a pain point though email isn't it for a number of people in our office that people you can't who, get away from it can you? well some people really don't like outlook some people mm. have, you know have quite a loathing of gmail i won't say who but it's 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 a constant source of irritation that these clients aren't working properly yeah, absolutely. And email is still something that we use for our uh, weekly bulletin brief. Oh, true. In that it. sense, it doesn't matter what client you've got. Exactly. It's an amazing piece of content and you should get it. Uh, so I feel like I've just undercut one of our, uh, one of our services there. It's, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what you're using. Have a look. Good angle to take on that there, I think. So anyway, folks, cheers for sticking with us. That's it for this time around. Now, issue 10 of the Digital Bulletin magazine will be out at the end of October, and the podcast team will be back to discuss that and more in about a month's time. But for now, thank you very much for tuning in. That was the Digital Bulletin podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug into digitalbullets.in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.